Fika with Anika. The word fika is used as both a noun and a verb and is derived from the Swedish word for coffee. The Swedish coffee break is a moment to literally leave work behind. Taken at three in the afternoon, it's not a strategy for multitasking or for fitting in another mini-meeting. It's a chance to relax in the company of colleagues or friends. The key is to pause your day. So, brew up some coffee, grab a seat, and embrace Fika. Conversations are fluid. This episode of Fika with Annika is over an hour long and will continue after the top of the next hour. Stay tuned to KOYT 97.1. Welcome to another Wednesday afternoon and Fika with Annika. I'd like to give a huge shout out to Barry Shankman for giving me permission to air his Voice of Memphis music interviews. Today's interview is the third in a series and features Bobby Manuel. Manuel has been in the music business for over 50 years as a guitarist, songwriter, and producer. He's worked with Isaac Hayes and Al Green, recorded with Elvis Presley, and penned songs with the Staple Singers. He's been a key, if quiet, contributor to much Memphis music history, crucially as a linchpin during the second half of Stax Records history. Born in the Bluff City in 1945, Manuel was steeped in a music-rich environment. He was raised in proximity to a great trumpeter, band leader, and eventual high records architect, Willie Mitchell. A self-described hyperactive kid, Manuel spent years developing his rhythm in dancing school, then decided to try his luck as a singer. He hoped that would be his way into the music business until a buddy told him his voice was, quote, terrible, unquote. As a young player, he was gigging in local clubs in his mid-teens, Manuel's influences range from blues greats like B.B. King and hot R&B players like Billy Butler to young lions like George Benson. In 1966, after a brief stint in the Army and while still in college, Manuel got his first start recording at Onyx Studio, the East Memphis facility run by former Marquis vocalist Ronnie Stutes. There, he caught the eye of Alan Jones, head of auditions at Stax Records. Manuel made his way into the Stax fold as the label found itself at a crucial crossroads. Just after the death of Otis Redding and following a split with Atlantic Records, which took Stax's back catalog. Fortunately, they decided to relaunch the label with a mess of releases, so he got to participate, engineer, and play on 27 albums his first year at Stax. He also worked on projects by everyone from Isaac Hayes to Delaney and Bonnie to The Emotions. In 1970, Bobby went on the road with Hayes for two years touring the world. When he returned to Stax, it was as a main guitarist and staff producer, following the departure of Booker T and the MG's guitar ace, Steve Cropper. Unforgettably, he also worked on Elvis's 1973 Raised on Rock album recorded at Stax. Manuel was there to the bitter end at Stax as the company went into financial freefall and closed in 1975. The fall of Stax meant hard times for Memphis music in the mid-70s. Around this time, Manuel received a call from Stax co-founder Estelle Axton, 
who'd gone on to start her own label, Freetone. She said, look, I got this disc jockey I want you to record, and he's got this song. The DJ turned out to be Rick Dees, and the song was Disco Duck, which Manuel produced. The tune turned out to be a massive novelty hit in 1976, selling some 4 million copies and becoming the last number one record made in Memphis for 40 years. The following year, Manuel and Stack's other co-founder, Jim Stewart, launched the Daily Planet recording studio, doing independent productions for the better part of the next two decades and yielding more chart records like Margie Joseph's number 12 hit, Knockout in 1983. So with that said, I'd like to uh, pour myself a cup of fika, kick back, and listen to a wonderful interview with uh, Barry Shankman and his co-host Kay Paul Compton and the wonderful Bobby Manuel. This is the Voice of Memphis Music, broadcast on allmemphismusic.com. Each week, Voice of Memphis Music brings you exciting visits with respected artists, thought-provoking interviews with industry professionals, and a generous dose of Memphis-style good times. We join Barry Shankman and K. Paul Compton with this week's guest, Bobby Manuel. Hi, everybody. This is the Voice of Memphis Music. I'm Barry Shankman with my co-host, K. Paul Compton. Today we have Bobby Manuel with us. Bobby is a well-known as a studio musician, a writer, an engineer, record producer, and studio owner. Bobby produced the smash hit record Disco Duck on Rick Dees. And Bobby, we want to welcome you to the program. Well, I'm glad to be here. Hey, Bobby, good to, good to talk to you. Uh, Bobby, you were born in 1945. Are, are you Memphis born? Are you a Memphis boy? I am. Listen, let me ask you a question, Bobby. Uh, when did you first start to play a musical instrument? I mean, just any musical instrument. Mm, about uh, 11, 12 years old. Started playing guitar. And uh, it was actually it was between a, a guitar and a saxophone because I had been listening to... Uh, the uh, Burn Baker and uh, Tweedly D, and I love that it had some sax in it. Anyway, I love that. So it was it was hard chores, but then I think Elvis Elvis was still you know well not still but doing his thing, and uh, you know that just kind of swayed me right there when I saw all that and saw all the girl how all the girls loved him. You know, maybe maybe that's the way to do, you know, the way to go. Yeah, so that's when I picked it up and uh, went down on uh, Beale Street. My brother-in-law took me down on Beale Street, and we bought a $5 uh, Stella guitar, which, uh, you know, you couldn't have played it with vice grips. It was uh, unbelievably <laughs> tough. So that lasted a month or so, you know, with lessons. And I couldn't do much with that. And so then, you know, I started pushing for electric guitar, which I think the following Christmas uh, was maybe when I got my first electric. So, you know, that's how I got into it, man, was listening to uh, listen to the radio, listening to Laverne Baker, and then certainly Elvis, you know, that was that was the thing. Uh, when, you were, when you were first starting to learn, how much time did you spend just, just practicing? I mean, you know, what's... Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, you know, I was consumed with it. 
um, every every minute. Um, I think I had a little natural gift for it, you know, and I could pick up things. Uh, I didn't like to read music at that age, you know. We we started uh, uh, with the teacher who was teaching that, you know, and then the little Mel Bay books and all that. And I did it, but I could learn, you know, quickly from listening to the records and things. So that's kind of kind of how I got a lot of it, you know. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, that was my passion. So uh, every every afternoon into the evening, man, it was in my hands, you know. Um, and I think you have to have that to, to be successful, you know, at, at being a musician or, or anything like that you want to do. It's, it's almost compulsive disorder i hear you what age did you what age did it hit you that you wanted to be a professional musician bobby um well well really then you know i mean i wanted definitely wanted to play and wanted to do that i just love music i I used to listen to uh, my sisters play piano and they and i just beg them to play the boogie woogie stuff you know and that's that's what i felt felt all that stuff and uh, I also heard, uh, you know, a lot of black music because my neighborhood was right next to Orange Mound. And on, on the next street over, uh, Willie Mitchell's mother lived. Well, that's, that's probably the house he grew up in. And I played with his cousins and all that. So I would hear that, uh, his nephews, rather. I would hear hear a lot of the music there, you know. So I had kind of a dual thing because the neighborhood was... Uh, uh, not really split. It was it was segregated in, but yet I had a lot of back black friends, and that's where I spent really and truly most of my time. You know, was uh, with those kids, and then the kids that went to a school called Bethel Grove, and so you know I kind of got the best of both worlds there, man. But musically, I think that's what kind of got me. I started hearing that music, and and I knew, you know, at some point this is this is what I wanted to do. I fought it forever started all the way, you know, through college, or I don't want to, no way I want to be a musician, you know, I, I know what's before me, you know, <laughs> and uh, I just saw, I saw from playing clubs and doing it, you know, through college and high school, I saw guys, man, just struggling to make a living, I said, well, I'm not, that's no way I'm going to do that, that's just, so that's why I was pursuing an education there, so it really didn't hit me until I was actually married, 20, uh, I think 20 years old, and uh, I was playing at a place called the Club Paradise. And um, boy, I remember the mind, Paradise. Yeah, oh yeah, man, it's where every, everybody, Ike and Tina, all the all the big rhythm and blues acts played there. It was really a prestigious job during that time, and uh, um, I, I was lucky to get it, you know. So um, anyway, I got got to see all those acts come in and play with them. A lot of times they wouldn't have their band, or they would just need the rhythm section and we would get to play with them you know so that kind of did it but what happened was there was a bass player in that band his name was alan jones so what i was doing at this time like i said i was just trying to get through college you know to get something where i could really make some money and and all that because you know i just got married and all so uh he was he worked at sax records so a, a job opening came over there and so he got me in, and uh, at that time it was uh, that was about well, '68, and I mean that was just unbelievable to get in those doors. Uh, I mean it was it was a closed shop, you know. So I took the job. It was seventy-five dollars a week, and what it was with Jim Stewart, 
had uh, gotten too busy to do engineering. And so they had hired Ronnie Capone, but he needed help uh, because he couldn't do it, do it all by himself. So they were one of the guys just, just to start a trainee, so to speak. So that's what I did, $75 a week, you know, knowing, knowing what it would lead to. And uh, so that's really, at that point, you know, that, that I was in. <laughs> I was in then. You're about 20 uh, years uh, old. And that then. became my career. That, that became my college and my school, you know. Boy, I hear you. Um, at that time, uh, being being married and everything, how was just how was your wife treating this? I mean, was it was was the money good enough that it that she wasn't letting you go with this? Uh yeah, she's always been great about that, and that was uh, she believed in me. She was a singer, and uh, she was finishing up college at that time, and uh, uh, so she, you know she she knew. You know, she 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 pushed me in a way that what kind of opportunity this was, you know, and, and like I say, I'd got had a few uh, other jobs, uh, you know, going through uh, when I was going to school and that kind of things. And you know, she could, I'm sure she could read me and knew that that wasn't that wasn't going to work. Uh, so this was a like this was just a great opportunity, and we both knew it that you know what could be made of wasn't much money then, but she was starting to. Uh, student teach and um, and she was within six months would be a teacher so we just we just made it through that and uh, you know we were able to were able to make it so within six months or so you know I was I think making I think they raised my 250 a week something like that you know uh, so it didn't take long you know to, to get kind of get things moving so uh, it, it wasn't that hard of, uh, of a decision and uh, we just need realize the opportunity because I mean stocks was it was just unbelievably hot at that time, you know. At that time, Stax had um, a writing staff. Where did did you work on the writing staff? Did you? No, get... uh, that was that was uh, I did later. Uh, there were actually uh, the, the big six, and and really the biggest the the, the two were Hayes and Porter were the main writers. Booker wrote a lot, and the rest of the guys didn't write much. They would contribute some. Cropper, Cropper wrote with some of the artists, you know. Of course he wrote with Otis and Eddie Floyd and songs like that. But as far as the staff, they didn't start developing that maybe to a year or so after I was there. And when they realized they needed, you know, other songs and whatever. And, and I think some of the first people that came in that was uh, Homer Banks and uh, um, his partner, which I, I can't even remember right now. Uh, uh, Jackson, Raymond Jackson, my goodness, dear friend. <laughs> uh, they were some of the first to get actually hired, you know, other than other than what they used to call the big six, you know. And uh, from there, they got uh, Betty Crutcher to write with them. He called themselves uh, We Three. So uh, they, they worked together maybe a year or so or more, whatever. But any, anyway, Betty, uh, it, it didn't... It didn't gel, and Betty kind of left and went out her own, and that's how I started writing there. Uh, for the most part, I mean, I wrote some songs with with Alan Jones. We did some things early '68, '69 for the Barcase and, and the newcomers and a couple of acts like that. But as far as really concentrating on writing or whatever, uh, Betty Crusher, you know, came to me and uh, needed a partner, so we we did it, you know, and. Uh, she really saved my life in a lot of ways because 
I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't, wasn't crazy about engineering at that time, and I was starting to play on uh, a lot of sessions and, uh, you know, getting called more and more. Uh, Cropper would be out, and um, they'd be on the road and this and that. And so i get to work. And so this was a great opportunity not to engineer so much, you know, and, and cut that stuff. Because I enjoyed... Uh, uh, actually, uh, the other part of it, you know, the playing and, and writing, the, that that kind of thing, rather than uh, rather the engineering. So it was a blessing. She really uh, helped get me going that way, you know. Bobby, uh, what about the producing? When did you get into doing the producing? It's uh, well, I co-produced some things, you know, with, with some of those guys, uh, with Alan and whatever, and. Uh, uh, there, you know, at the early stage, but I would say about 1970, I started, uh, you know, wanting to get on my own, and, you know, Jim Stewart would just welcome it. I mean, you know, if you were breathing, he'd let you try, you know. That's that's the kind of place it was, man. You know, I mean, we had a uh, security guard who uh, ended up as an engineer, man, you know, and uh, uh, Robert Jackson, great engineer, you know, and... uh, he just said, man, I want to try this, you know. And so it was that kind of open shop with, with, with the people there, you know. They would, they would let you try anything. So I started producing and uh, did some on my own. First thing I did for them was a guy named Ben Atkins. And uh, then I started doing two or three records with Duck Dunn, uh, who was a bass player at MG. We did some records, and I did some more on my own and that kind of thing. So that's, that's when it when it started at Stack. Now, I had I had produced some earlier records. There was a studio called Onyx, and that was uh, first started, uh, well, the guy that ran it, let me put it that way, was a guy named uh, Ronnie Stutes, and uh, his stage name was Ronnie Angel. He was the singer with the Marquees. So, uh, seeing how hot Stacks was, he got some uh, investors, and they built the uh, uh, studio there and uh you know he started up so i was i was hoping that that would be you know what stacks would and that now i was also in college but this is obviously before stacks and we put a rhythm section together and did some things so i produced a couple of records for them uh back then in fact on a group called the village sound which later a lot of those guys became uh black oak arkansas and then uh, well, this guy named Pat Taylor, I, I don't he's been with a ton of groups. I can't even, can't even think uh, the names of some of those groups. And Greg Redding also. Uh, so they were a real talented group. And I uh, uh, did a couple of records uh, with them. And did another guy named Art Gentry, who Alan Jones had, uh, who knew. He was a cousin of Ben Cauley. And so we wrote... Uh, some songs together and, and rec- recorded them there, a thing called Merry Go Round, and can't remember the B side, but uh, so those were actually my first production things that I did. Uh, Merry Go Round was almost picked up by Stax. They were real interested in that record at that time. It started breaking in Atlanta. It's a pretty good record. You know, I get calls from England, people looking for it. It's kind of become a collector's thing, you know. And uh, there weren't many pressed. I, I think they only did 500 or something like that. So 
that was how I, you know, I got into to producing. It was a natural thing from being in bands, you know, and arranging and always enjoyed that thing and putting, putting the grooves together and all that. So that was just, a, you know, an outgrowth of that. Uh, so when I got the opportunity, man, that, that did it. So, yes, but those, uh, those were my first, you know, efforts at production. And then, like I say, at Saks, I just grew into it and would get an artist as they came, you know. So that's how it started, man. Well, which artist did you have the most fun recording with while at Stax? Uh, a guy named uh, Stephen. He sounded like Joe Cocker, and he was from Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, we did some some great sides. A lot of there's a couple of these things that did are on the. In fact, he's the only white artist, I believe, other than the goodies. I take that back on the on the box set stuff. And uh, I think what's on there. Uh, is a song called Holy Cow, which, you know, he, he was a great, great artist, you know. So uh, I think we did, I don't know, five or six uh, sides on him. And um, I learned that he was one of my favorites, you know. Uh, another one was Little Milton. I got to do a Little Milton album and did uh, one of his classic songs was called Walk in the Back Streets and Crying, you know. And, uh, that was uh, how, how that came about. I didn't start the record. Uh, Al Jackson was actually starting the record, and uh, he was uh, um, shot. And uh, he wasn't killed at this time, but he was shot, and he couldn't work on it, and so and, you know, he had to finish it. So uh, uh, Robert Jackson and I finished the record and, you know, uh, produced it. So that, uh, they're, they're, like I say, that song is a, a classic song to this day. It's really a great, great blues song, you know, and I... I don't take much credit for that because, I mean, you know, if you're talking about producing a blues artist, there's not a whole lot. You can screw it up. Let me put it this You can screw it up by producing it, you know. That's why I walk the back street and cry. need to do is just <laughs> let let it happen you know and, and just get it recorded uh, the best you can and that kind of thing make sure you got good grooves and all that and that's that's essentially what we did there's there's not much production uh, to doing someone like little milton i mean he, he uh, was who he you know who he was and uh, he did what he did so there's uh, there's not a whole lot of enhancement and things that you, that you would do uh, to make him better, you know, you could certainly ruin it, you know, but uh, uh, but it was it was a joy to be a part of that. And uh, um, my, one of my favorites on that record was that'll that's what love will make you want to do. Man, that's a killer group on that record. They still play that a lot. I hear that a lot on these stations around here. So anyway, I'm real real proud of proud of those records. Uh, uh, another one I really loved did a record on Annette Thomas, who was a uh, famous gospel singer man her whole family was you know had a huge tradition and so what i was trying to do at that time was get something you know a song that was like uh, mavis and uh 
and uh, reflected the success they had, you know, from I Take You There and all that. So uh, we did a song called You Got a Friend Like Mine. It's a pretty good record. And that was uh, just quite, quite talented, man. And uh, she had a huge uh, gospel career, you know. I think she was from out in California. So anyway, that's just some of the things of how I got into it, man, and people that, that I enjoyed uh, enjoyed doing the most, man. That was it. What would you say was your most difficult project then? Mm. Gosh, man. You know, the, I don't think any of them were were really difficult. Uh, you know, the hardest part would be finding songs for a lot, you know. Um, and and it, if you could, you know, get over that hump, then none of the men were, were really prima donnas. Man, those people, they had it together. Gosh, man, I knew they they were the best in the world, man. They were like, give you ten takes, or is that good enough? Or you, know, you want another one? I mean, it was never, it was never that 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 kind of way. You know, there were some that I wouldn't have wanted. Like I wouldn't have wanted to produce. Uh, I don't think Albert King. I think that would have been difficult. You know, and uh, uh, he just, you know, he's kind of an ornery guy. I mean, it'd be hard to to do. You know, I played on some of his things, and I don't know. I was so intimidated by him, you know, that, uh, well, he was he was really, really tough to work with, man. He'd come in, you know, with, with an attitude and uh, just not want to cooperate, <laughs> you know. And, he was, and I guess if you looked at it that, in the way that, well, that's who he was, and that's what he did, you know. But he would always just come in with. It seemed like Albert had a chip on his shoulder. He would, you know. I remember we were playing. Uh, uh, I want to play the Blues for You album, and there were three guitars on it. It was um, Michael Toes, myself, and uh, Skip Pitts. <laughs> so uh, Albert knew, you know, of course, that we we played it, at different times. Each one of us would would play with Isaac, so. Uh, we were in there just playing rhythm parts, you know, and whatever, trying to help his, you know, get his, get his thing on. Man, he stopped us in the middle of a take. Well, not stop the take, but he started talking on the mic. He said, "Well, all you guys, you know, y'all play with uh, with Isaac, man." He said, "I'm gonna show you something." He said, "Play a solo, play, play, go on, play there." <laughs> no, nobody dared. You know what I mean? Not a note was struck. We just looked and smiled because man, to jump in there, that would be like you know a fire. You know, that just be incredible, man. So there was no way I was going to do it. I was sitting there playing slide, and that's not my main thing anyway. I wasn't about to jump in that kind of deal. But but I, I would imagine that uh, Albert would uh, have been difficult, let me put it that way. You know, uh, but, you know, what a great art. So, uh, but he's the only one that I can think that I ever saw that, uh, you know, if, if I had my choice, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to jump in that fire, you know. Uh, Alan Jones did it okay. You know, he seemed to manage it, and they were able to find some great songs. I guess if you just got past the initial intimidation stuff, you know, that that he threw out there was it was it was okay. But man, I never had any problem with uh, with any of the people I produced. You know, they were all a joy to work with, man. Bobby, uh, when you were uh, at Stax and Jim and Estelle were in the heyday. Um, did did they just take you under their wing, or did you become their friend? I mean, how did that happen? What was your relationship like with him? Uh, Estelle and I did not get close to later on when I did some other records for her. 
Jim, I was always uh, scared to death of Jim at that time, man. I mean, um, of course, he took me under his wing later on when he, uh, uh, you know, would let me produce or do whatever, you know. But it wasn't a thing where you uh, you kind of hung out, you know, and you felt comfortable and, and that, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, uh, it was just, Jim was a very quiet kind of guy, and he... You know, he didn't have anything to say unless he had something to say, you know, and uh, and you listened at that point. And, uh, so it wasn't a lot of small talk is what I'm trying to say with him. But uh, the things he told me, man, were straight up, and he certainly was, was coaching me. I remember, you know, especially on, on the first Ben Atkins record, we did a uh, – we did a breakdown in it where the, the kick drum goes to like a two and a four, you know, dang, dang and that kind of thing, you know. And it was like a uh, Aretha had done Chain of Fools, and uh, I was trying to get a little little groove for a breakdown like that. And he, he, he was telling me, he said, man, don't, if you've got a groove working, he said, man, don't, don't do that. He said, don't, don't stop it in the middle of it. And, you know, he said, let that groove rock. So, you know, all along he was working with me and giving, giving input and, uh, uh, I, I think he enjoyed, you know, seeing a young kid, you know, trying to get it together. Uh, and uh, like I say, as far as Estelle, other than just a business working relationship, I did I didn't get close to her till later on, till till after Stacks. Well, now, um, were you still with the Stacks label when they started to be distributed by Columbia? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, what that was, was, it? What was I was what? there from '68, which was uh, uh, the Atlantic split was just. That, in fact, that was Otis had. Uh, uh, it was the end of '68. Uh, Otis had just died, and they didn't know what they were going to do. The first month or so, I was there. It was like a morgue around there, man. No, but you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. It was really strange that first uh, first first time. So. Yeah, that was when they were they were on their own, and I lived through the uh, through the first uh, fiasco that was with uh, Gulf and Western, and uh, that was after we did. I think the following spring, we started on thirty one albums, and that was uh, when they were trying to build catalog. They had gotten away from Atlantic, and then uh, they realized they had to have catalog, you know, to make this thing work. And we were working twenty four seven, man. So I was doing everything at that point on all those albums, playing, producing, uh, you know, whatever, a guitar, whatever needed to be done. We were all just, just doing as much as we could. And, uh, you know, even things out, outside of there were being done to try to try to get those albums finished. Um, that was, uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was spring of 69 when we did it. I, I don't think we ended up with, it was 31, maybe it was 27, 28, something like that. But that's that's when they had this big convention, and and we kind of went on our own, and and uh, and ended up again with Gulf and Western. Uh, and I'm not sure how long that lasted before the Columbia deal, Columbia deal came. But uh, I lasted through all of it, man. You know, it was uh, it was some tough goings for a while. Especially the Columbia situation, you know, that was that was towards the end, you know, when they uh, weren't paying us, and you know, things got got really edgy at that point, you know. Um. So yeah, I lived, <laughs> I lived through most most of it. <laughs> you said that you you didn't really get friendly to Estelle with Estelle for a while, but uh, did All you right. ever go ahead? 
Uh, yes, that's right. I mean, it, you know, certainly, you know, speaking and, and, and this kind of thing, I used to go in that record store a lot. There was a guy named Johnny Keys uh, who uh, worked in there and who hang, hung around rather with uh, Packy Axton. And uh, I used to play gigs with those guys, with Packy and Johnny. And uh, and so I kind of, I knew, you know, I spoke to him and things like that. But at that time, I was just, just starting to get uh, my writing career. She was more... Uh, uh, well, let me say, her the thing she liked to do at the company was to uh, help those writers and things, you know. So uh, early on, that that's what she was doing, you know. Um, so I didn't have much much contact uh, much contact with her there, uh, you know. Like until, like I say, till it was uh, till it was over, and she had her own company called Freetone. And then, of course, you know, produced uh, sides for and worked with it there, but. Uh, uh, other than, other than just passing and things like that, you know. But I knew a lot of people loved her, and uh, uh, you know, really, really cherished the relationship with her. She helped a lot of those writers, man. That that was her thing, you know. While you were at Stax, did Packy ever do any session work with you? Mm, no. Um, I was trying to think. I can only remember being in there with Johnny Keys one time, and. Uh, I do. I have no. I don't have a clue what we were working on. I, I couldn't. I couldn't tell you. But no, Packy had kind of. Packy had kind of got out of it at that point, you know. And uh, I, I think that the, the, the split had come uh, between uh, he and Jim. And he had done the. Uh, I remember being over there at the time that they were uh, jumping up and down about the record he put out, which was, uh, gosh, man. Uh, I can't think of that right. It sounded, let me put it this way, it sounded like the MGs. So, well, it was them on it, and uh, he had taken the, taken it, I think, to California and got it got it released, and uh, Packy and the Packers, I believe, was the name of the, the group. And doggone, I can't think of the record, but that was a great sounding record, you know. Uh, but certainly, you know, uh, he was a bud, man. I mean, we did, did those old marquee gigs and all that stuff, because... Uh, Cropper wasn't going out with them, and a lot of times Charlie couldn't make it. And so what they would do, Charlie Freeman, who was uh, part of the part of the, uh, the, the uh, well, I should say, he took Cropper's place in that band. Um, well, no, I'll take it back. He was an original. He was an original. Um, but anyway, they uh, a lot of the guys would they would book marquee gigs, you know, and just be one or two of them. And uh, they, they, they just hire some guys and go play. I mean, at one time, there were probably 10, 10 marquee bands around, you know, in the South working, you know. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of how I got to know those guys. Terry Johnson, the drummer, and, uh, and Packy and I did a lot of gigs together. I did a lot with Don Dix, you know, when he would uh, book those things. And um, I remember one crazy tour I did with him. We went to... Uh, all through uh, see Alabama, we played with the governor's son George Wallace Jr. at uh, in Birmingham, and uh, we played on a show with a group called the New Beats. Uh, what was their song? I like bread and butter, or something like that. <laughs> and we played with the phony Sir Douglas of the Sir Douglas Quintet. You know what? What the deal was? I'm not sure anybody other. We were we were sort of the bogus marquees. I think the only legitimate act was probably the New Beats. And uh, there was a guy in Memphis that did all the booking uh, uh, 
Ray Brown was his name. He used to put all those packages together and send them out. And uh, it was just just a crazy time, man. We were we were playing uh, last night with one horn. So what does that tell you about the legitimacy of it? You know, it, with a berry at that. You know? <laughs> the rest of it was Nick singing uh, Dylan songs or something. I don't. It was just a crazy time. We I think we went all the way to uh, Miami. I never will forget. Forget this. This deal. Walked to the. It was a huge club, man. Where all these acts had played. I believe. Oh, what's the guys? Wayne Cochran and a lot of famous guys that played at this club, and they had the picture of the Marquis up there. So here we all go in, and it's uh, I think we had five pieces, man. We had organ. I was playing bass, and uh, a guy named Mark Tidwell was playing guitar. A guy named Joe Carrero uh, was playing drums, and uh, and Nix would play on the one song. That's that's about all he could play, and. We walked, and the guys were standing at the door, and there was a picture of the marquee. So we said, well, man, where's Doug? <laughs> you know, who's the rest of the guys? I said, well, I don't know what he told them, but anyway, we played one night. They let us play one night. It was just horrible. And we made, we ended up with $50, man. First time I ever uh, flew a plane, flew on a plane, rather, uh, was, was that when we, we had the uh, 50 bucks to get back home. Yeah, so that was that was one of the bigger tours, man. But it was that kind of craziness, you know. That's a that's the kind of things that were going on. What what year was that, Bobby? When was that? Gosh, man, that had to be. That was probably sixty four. Oh. Yeah, about sixty four. Well, I understand. 60, yeah, I understand that in seventy three. Uh, you subbed for Steve Cropper and Booker T and the MGs, along with Carson Witsit and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Al Jackson yeah. Jr. and Duck Dunn. Yeah. Uh, how long did you do that? Until it closed. Until it, well, actually, until uh, Al was killed. Al was murdered. I see. And uh, so, but we did that. That was um, well. That's at least a, a two-year kind of kind of thing. We were working on the second album when. Uh, when Al was killed, and uh, it kind of kind of ended that, you know. But yeah, I think Cropper left. I want to say seventy one, seventy two, something like that. And I was fortunate enough to get the gig and to to go with them, and you know, we started on the record. And uh, man, all my dreams were were being answered. You know, I was home producing, writing, and um, now at that time I was still out there with Isaac. I was Isaac's first guitar player, Isaac Hayes. And, uh, boy, he was hot. What can I tell you how hot he was? Um, we went, I played with Isaac I mean, a year and a half. We went everywhere, man. It was, it was incredible. And, that's, you know, that's when he had a smaller rhythm section. And he would hire the uh, the strings and the horns in the cities we went to. But, man, it was, it was incredible. Uh, you know, it was, uh, like I say, it was... It was so much fun. There's only one guitar player, and I got to do all the solos and stuff, and the crowds were just, just amazing, man. We played uh, uh, the Fillmore. We played uh, played there with, uh, I see who was on that show, Richie Havens and uh, Nina Simone. <laughs> and uh, then we played Winterland. We played that with Led Zeppelin. And uh, that was incredible, man. I had a good night that night. You know, I got some... <laughs> Got some good reviews and stuff. Well, I tell you what happened. One thing is that uh, 
uh, the first night they didn't like the show. You know, they said the, the, the reviews were it's kind of a lounge act. And most of that crowd, man, you know, they were hippies and and they were into Zeppelin, man. So the, the next night, uh, he said, let's just play some blues, man. So that was my thing. So I got to got to shine a little bit and get some, you know, some cool reviews and stuff, you know. And, um, and, and so from then on, we kind of kept it in the show, you know. It was it was really a ball. So that was. That was, uh, you know, it was just a couple of shows. I was trying to think who was Blood, Sweat, and Tears was on that show. I, I think. I, and a jazz, uh, I can't think of the, uh, Sonny Rollins. So what a mix, huh? But, you know, those were the kind of gigs we were playing. I mean, it was it was top flight, and it was great money. He was taking care of us, flying us uh, everywhere we went. It was uh, Marvell Thomas was... Uh, uh, playing keyboards, and a guy named Jerry Norris, and Alan Jones was playing bass, and uh, he was a killer bass player, by the way. He was, he, Alan was the first pick by Jackie Wilson when Jackie was, was hot. That was a guy, but everybody in the world, that's who he picked, man. He came to Memphis and got Alan to play, but Alan, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't pursue that. He just wanted, he produced the bar case from then. That was his thing, but man, Alan could have... Alan could play better than anybody around here. I'm telling you, man. Duck told me one time, said, if a guy ever wants to play, I'm history. That's how good he was. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't his thing. He was wanting to produce. So he was in the band. And uh, let's see. Well, Isaac playing organ. And uh, that was about it. Uh, well, we had a, a rhythm uh, percussionist. And, uh, man, that, that was the most fun those times were just just killer, man. It was right after Hot Buttered Soul, and uh, you know we were doing it. We went all over the place. So I was doing that as well as uh, you know we just started the BMG thing. So my world was pretty good during that time, man. I, you know I got to tell you it was it was fun, man. You know I'm trying to produce some acts and <laughs> yeah, I miss it, Doc. It's all I can tell you. Bobby, um, just to jump around a little bit. There's a guy that produced a, a song by the name of Dale Yard. Can you tell oh, us no. about that? <laughs> you, you're wrong, man. You're wrong for that, man. I'm not sure your listeners want to, want to, know, want to know about that. Oh, <laughs> give so us a little wrong. bit. So wrong for this. But I will tell you that uh, that is a pseudonym I use. <laughs> and so I was a, a Stax artist. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I, I, I used to love to do these comedy songs, man. So, <laughs> uh, but I didn't like country music, so <laughs> so I did this kind of parody song of uh, I'm a Gonna Courtin', you know, where I actually sang. And let me tell you, that's a, that's something you do not want to hear ever, ever, ever. In fact, when I write songs with people, if I got little melodies, they'll make me play it. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Please don't let me hear that. So, yeah, I made this record, and it's a it's a funny record. It is funny. I had a, a door stopper in it, and on the board we screwed it in the board and made it our own kind of sound, you know. So, um, some guy, what is the guy? He's from I'm not sure. One of uh, Scandinavian countries came uh, about two years ago to Memphis, and I was at uh, at Ardent. And Larry Nix is a good friend of mine who was a, a mastering engineer at Stax, and he's he's over at Ardent now and has his you know his business over there and still masters. So uh, I hear that record coming from his room, 
And I thought, oh, no, who has got that? And when, when, you know, when I ran in, this guy, you know, they were all laughing and everything. And I met him, I can't think of his name, but he's the sweetest guy in the world. And he actually had the record. And uh, I was able to get a copy of it at the time. And, uh, well, it was fun. The thing, uh, uh, the irony of it is it started selling over there. And they were thinking, you do some more. I said, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. And, uh Oh, it was it was just a trip. So you know, to say the door was open is, uh, gosh, you know, an understatement for what they would let you do in there. You know, but uh, the dumb thing started selling some. And I don't know. That's the only one I wanted to do. You know, I had a a big poster made of uh, when I was in dancing school. I used, to, you know, when I was a kid, we were doing this twenties, nineteen twenties, kind of like Charleston dance. I had this girl sitting on my knee, you know, with uh, wearing a flapper costume so i had this big poster made that said i'm a going to court and <laughs> we, we put that out so it was, it was some crazy times you know just having some fun with it man but for you to know about that i i don't know i don't know how you found that out <laughs> kudos for that but, but it, it was just a pseudonym that you used so people weren't aware of of who you were oh, at the yes. time. Yes, yes. If you heard the record, you would know. <laughs> I just wanted yes. I wanted to clear that one up. Just it yes, just by happened all, to come. By all, by all means. Uh, but it will make you laugh. I will say that. Oh, I it will make you laugh. It will do that. And. Uh, we had it was crazy, man. I I played all the instruments on it, so you can imagine that. Even steel guitar, so which I had never touched. So what does that tell you? <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> New territory. Well, well, Bobby. Yeah, you, there you go. You, you kind of continued that comedy thing in a way with the uh, uh, in '76 when you produced Disco Duck. Tell us about that. Well, uh, yeah, 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 we did. Uh, uh, let's see, that was, uh, I want to say, yeah, it was 76, wasn't it, Paul? I'm, uh, mine's going. But, uh, yeah, I always had a sense of that, but they didn't know that at the time. I mean, Estelle called me up, and, uh, well, no, no, see, I was producing uh, a couple of artists before Rick Dees. I, I produced a, a girl named Catherine Chase for Estelle on Free Tone, and... Uh, well, maybe that's all I had done at that time, yeah. And so she said, I've got this uh, disc jockey that, uh, you know, uh, wanting to record. And I said, well, can he sing? She said, well, I don't know. <laughs> so, so I wasn't, man, I wasn't thrilled. You know, or, you know but let me say, facts had folded at that time, man, and we were, everybody was just looking, what are we going to do, and, you know, out here. And, uh, gosh, it was quite a shock, what can I say? So we were, everybody was scuffling. So uh, I said, well, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll listen and see what we can do. And so met with the guy, and we wrote the song in my kitchen. And uh, I said, well, it's comedy. Oh, okay, you know. And, uh, But there's no stuff for the duck in his beak. 
went on from there. So uh, uh, they released the record. I never remember, I remember saying, well, it's either going to be a quadrillion seller or it's going to be the worst record ever made, you know. So I think it's a little of both, but still, you know, it, uh, it, it was still a big works, success. Man. It was a big success. Yeah, it was, it was part, I, I got to say, you know, I joke, but it was, it was serious music. Uh, I was using uh, most of uh, uh, the tax rhythm section uh, at that time. I was using Willie Hall, Lester Snell, and Ray Griffin, and they were like the, had become pretty much a top call over there at Stax at that time, right at the end at 75. And uh, we just continued on. And I added some guys who were hanging around the studio where uh, where I cut it, a guy named uh, Swain Schaefer. I added him on piano and another great guitarist named Gimmer Nicholson. And uh, that was our little band. And uh, we started cutting those things over there. And I was, I was just thrilled to to work, you know, and, and had a ball doing it. I mean, some of those songs are really, really quite clever and a lot of fun. And, and again, the music was serious now, you know. I mean, uh, the grooves were real intense and great players on it and, uh, and again, some real intense grooves on it. So uh, that, that, the nature of that was, was really serious, even though, the, you know, the song itself was what it was, you know. But, uh, man, the playing and the musicianship and whatever else was, uh, I thought, impeccable, man. It was, it was some great musicians. That's some all good I times, wasn't it? Good times. All right, listen. Some of the best, and laughing every day. You know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> laughing and having fun, and you know it really saved me that that uh, that record and, and and album because financially, you know, we were we were really having tough tough times, man. You know, coming from uh, making great money and doing all the things we were doing in stacks to nothing. Everybody was just scuffling, man. Nobody could get record deals. It was just really a hard time and uh man god bless me what can i tell you it just uh uh saved me and i had just had twins not <laughs> too long which you know i had three kids then you know and uh so uh it really saved us it really saved us uh, uh financially and in just a lot of ways i was able to do things from there that uh i wouldn't have been able to do you know with the success and the money of it and from it rather and uh so it was a it was a great great time in my life also you know after but I didn't have too much uh, too much downtime of uh, starving to death you know it was just four or five months there they're pretty shaky but gosh man you know like I say what a blessing to uh, to get it so we we had a ball with it man you know and well, we were parroting everything from disco to whatever <laughs> you know I mean we were merciless man you know I think we were the early uh, um, uh, Big Al, uh, Yankovic, you know, I think we were, you know, the, the pre-runner or forerunner to, to, to some crazy things he did, you know, and uh, well, we were having a ball with it. So that's that's what I can say there, man. You know, right. it's a great, great time, man. To this day, some of those things are still still playing, and uh, one of the songs was in Saturday Night Live in the, uh, uh, in the movie, Saturday Night Fever, rather, and uh, still, you know, uh, brings me a little coin now and then, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm really proud of it uh, on that level. And uh, anyway, yeah. All right. Well, Bobby, listen. After stacks ended and um, things were, like you said, hard on a lot of people, you and Jim, who was the ST of stacks, 
Y'all owned and operated a studio in the same building uh, with Shoe Productions over there at Hollywood and Broad. What was the name of that studio? That was uh, originally the, the name of it was uh, Daily Planet. Oh, okay. And I had been to yeah, I had been to California and was finishing up Jesus record out there, and uh, there was a courier service uh, named Daily Planet. I thought, how cool. And, you know, that's my age thing. That's my, you know, Superman was my, you know, one of my right. things. And I'm going to use that. So we found a uh, an old glass door at one of the uh, the old buildings they were tearing down. One of the guys who was helping us build the studio, you know, found it down there. And so we had this etching done on it. It's really cool, you know, of, of the world and everything. Uh, and uh, we naturally named it Daily Planet Productions and Studio. And uh, we started using it until a local lawyer called us and said, well, you can't, you can't use that. <laughs> why? You know, why? Well, I represent... Uh, uh, Warner Brothers, and uh, uh, they own the rights to that. And I said, well, man, what, you know, we're not putting out records right now. We're just, we still can't use it, you know. So uh, right. it, it from there, you know, we, we just went to other names and did things. We went to a Black Diamond at one time, and we did release a, a Shirley Brown record on that label. And, uh, well, and there was another uh, label we were affiliated. Well, we started not affiliated with. There's a guy in Houston. And uh, named Harvey Lynch. He was a big radio guy here at DIA. And uh, so I met him through a singer called William Brown, uh, who had done a record for him. Yep. Remember and, William, uh, yeah. Yeah, William was one of my dear friends and uh, one of the mad lads and, you know, wrote songs together and I produced some of their records. He engineered too. Yes, he was, listen, he was one of the best. I Yeah, I yeah. used William on a couple of things. Um, uh, back at art and once um, stacks had closed, but I like yeah. him a lot. Uh, oh, listen, he was a beautiful guy, man. Beautiful he, guy. And, yeah, uh, it, you know, had a good heart, huh? I said he had a real good heart. Oh yes, he did. Absolutely, he did. And uh, uh, but he, you know, he didn't never really want to be an artist much. Uh, you know, with he wanted to be within that group, and it was hard to encourage. But he was a killer solo singer, so. Uh, Anyway, I think his record, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, uh, it was released by, by this guy on HRC, Houston Record right. uh, Connection, I believe is what he called it. So uh, William told me, he said, Bobby, you ought to call this guy because, you know, he wants to put something together. So I told Jim about it, and, you know, we did meetings and from there. So we had plenty of financing at that time. You know, this guy was in the oil business. And it was it was booming. I think that was about '82, and uh, we put the record company together called Houston Connection. And within a couple of months, man, we had the number two record com uh, in the country, uh, a record called Knockout on uh, Margie Joseph, who was at Stax originally at Stax. So and we had four or five other acts and had records out, you know, uh, popping pretty good. And uh, yeah, you know, I thought, well, here we go. We, we got it again, and we got financing. And that was always the big thing with uh, Jim Stewart was that uh, he just didn't want to get back into it if it couldn't be done right, you know. Uh, he just didn't want to go into it. As far as a label, you know, on, on a shoestring, he just he didn't have eyes for that. You know, he knew how tough it was, and he had done that, you know. So it was hard for him to take a step back. 
But this situation, we had the money and the financing, and we were starting to do it. Uh, and, and like I say, within uh, you know, months, we had that record and had others breaking. And then the oil business, 80, well, I think it was 83, went boom, or bust, rather, and it was over. We got a call and said, well, you know, we've got to dissolve the, the company. <laughs> it said, I don't have money to, oh, man, it just killed us, you know. Well, so, Bobby, Bobby, what drew you into the gospel production? And uh, Is this something you really enjoyed? Um, yeah, well, you know, I've been in the church since I was 12, man, you know. In a Baptist church, I walked that aisle, brother, when I was 12, and uh, I really loved it all, all, all my life. You know, we we always we raised our kids in the church, and we were always in in the church. You know, and uh, I love black gospel music, man. I mean, what can I tell you? You know, it's it's the roots of it. And uh, so, at uh, I, I can't remember which, maybe the last seven, six or seven years, I was uh, on the studio. Jim Jim retired, see about. 96, something like that. And uh, so at that time, I just I decided, I said, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a whirl. And that's when I, you know, got my own label going called High Stacks and started getting acts and uh, got some good acts, man. Got a couple of great choirs, Billy Rivers and Angelic Voices of Faith. And, oh, uh, boy. We had a hit record right off the bat with those guys, you know. Oh, boy. And, uh, we were on, on our way doing it. We had a girl named Jackie Johnson who was just a killer singer and a couple more choirs and then some solo guys. So well, that, were... that would have just been, well, it was a blessing. You know why yeah, I did no, it. I'm I, sick. I think three or four years, you know, I did that, and then I had some health issues. And uh, then, then when that happened, I, I just said, well, maybe, maybe it's time to get out, you know. And the doctors kind of advised me in that way, too. So, you know, that's that's that was there. And that was about... 2002 that you know i just say well oh, maybe maybe it's time to hang up those shoes you know but i still play and do all you know do all the stuff do a, do a couple of records now and then you know that's good uh what was the name of the uh record label that you started on your own um uh high stacks high stacks and, and yeah i try to combine uh uh, Willie Mitchell saying that high and then stacks and I spelled it H I S T A C K S. And um, I did a Rufus record on the label. You know, well, the first thing we did was uh, it was to, to help me try to get financing. I just always felt that you know some kind of stacks reunion record uh, needed to be done. You know, and I got as many of those guys as I could, and we did nine twenty six East Macklemore. Allen's just killing on it, <laughs> and you know Jay Blackfoot, Barkay. So 
you know, uh, mad lads. Well, I don't know if we get half these guys. Tim Priest, you know. Well, that's and, a lot uh, of oh man, it was it was a great record. Conversations are fluid. This episode of Fika with Annika is over an hour long and will continue after the top of the next hour. Stay tuned to KOYT 97.1.